Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Does anyone know who that is? This is a part of a statue that was taken off the cathedral at Notre Dame. Uh, It was beheaded uh, during one of the revolutions in France. This is King David. What do you know about King David? Maybe a little, maybe a lot. King David is remembered as the greatest of all of the kings of Israel. Now, you should know that there is actual, uh, actually very little evidence to document David's historical life. I think, in truth, there's actually one rock with his name on it. Like, that's it that we have to document his supposed greatness. But historical facts have never gotten in the way of good biblical storytelling. So we remember David as the greatest of the kings of Israel, more than any other character in the Bible. When we engage David's story, it gives us a place to reflect on power. What does it mean to have power in this world? Can political power ever be used in a way that is consistent with the will of God? Before we read today's passage, I want to make sure that you know David's story, the backstory behind the passage that we're going to read today. God's people were living in the promised land, and they were living in loose tribes ruled over by judges and led by priests. And before the story happens, before the story of David, uh, the people are complaining again, just like they were in the wilderness. And they're complaining because the priests and the judges are terrible. And they, the, the first Samuel has this wonderful line that says, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Hmm. Wonder what that feels like, right? What's worse uh, is that the neighbors of the Israelites, uh, the Philistines, who are much more powerful than they are, are starting to threaten to, to come in. And the Israelites wonder if their own survival is at stake. And so they, they cry out and they say to God, we want a king. We need a king. If we had a king, the king could organize us so we could defend ourselves. And God's response uh, is... Eh, not so sure about that. Kings, God says, come with a lot of baggage, and you may not like it. But the people beg and they plead, and so God relents, I will give you a king on two conditions. Number one, I get to choose the king. And number two, your king must be supported by my prophet. So the first king is Saul, and Saul's a bit of a nightmare. Right? And so then this, this boy uh, uh, gets, get, kind of comes into the picture. He's the eighth son of a poor family. He comes from among the people. He's a, a man of the people. And one amazing day on the battlefield against the Philistines, you know this shepherd, he pulls up his what? 
his slingshot, and he goes, soup, pow, and down goes Goliath, the most powerful Philistine warrior. And when Goliath goes down, this shepherd boy, David, rises up. He begins a meteoric rise into the kingship. We find out in the scriptures that David is pious. He's a man after God's own heart. As we say in the South, he loves the Lord, right? Uh, He's a good military commander. He's an astute politician. This guy can even sing and dance. He is like a renaissance Man, And after a bit, David becomes the king, and he unites the northern and the southern kingdoms. He creates a new capital at the city of Jerusalem, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant to the new capital in this great, joyful, slightly naked procession. So here we are at the beginning of our story today. David is sitting in his new palace. He's kicking up his feet. He's leaning back on his overstuffed pillows, and he's hanging out with the prophet Nathan. And here is today's reading from 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter. Before long, the king made himself at home, and God gave him peace from all his enemies. Then one day, King David said to Nathan the prophet, Look at this, here I am, comfortable in a luxurious house of cedar, and the ark of God sits in a plain tent. Nathan told the king, Whatever's on your heart, go and do it. God is with you. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, this is God's word on the matter. You're going to build a house for me to live in? I haven't lived in a house from the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt until now. All that time, I've moved about with nothing but a tent. Did I ever say to any of the leaders I commanded to shepherd Israel, Why haven't you built a house of cedar for me? So here's what you were to tell my servant David. The God of the angel armies has this word for you. I took you from the pasture, tagging along after sheep. I made you prince over my people Israel. I was with you everywhere you went. I mowed your enemies down before you. Now I'm making you famous to be ranked with the great names on earth. And I'm going to set aside a place for my people Israel. I will plant them there so they'll have their own home and not be knocked around anymore. Nor will evil men afflict you as they always have, even during the days I set judges over my people Israel. Finally, I'm going to give you peace from all your enemies. Furthermore, God had this message. God will build you a house, David. Your family and your kingdom are permanently secured. I'm keeping my eye on them, and your royal throne will always be there rock solid. Nathan gave David a complete and accurate account of everything he heard and saw in the vision From the message translation, this is the word of God for you, the people of God. So you heard what happened in the story. There's an artistic rendering of Nathan, the prophet, with David, the king. David looks less than pleased, doesn't he? You heard what happened. David notices that the Ark of the Covenant is still sitting in the tent while he's sitting in a mansion. He says, I should build a house too. I should build God a house. So enter Nathan, who's basically inventing the job of prophecy as he goes along. And he says, hey, good idea, boss. Right? Because up until now, everything that David has done is golden. 
David's been cozy with God. What could go wrong? And yet, late that night, God speaks to Nathan and says to the prophet, Tell David that what David wants and what I want are not the same thing. God never asked for a house before, and God is not asking David for a house now. But for God, the bigger issue than the question of building a house for the ark is that David seems to have crossed over a line. The line is the line that separates one from being mostly full of God to being mostly full of himself. David is living the good life at this moment, right? He is living uh, uh, high on the hog, as they say. In his ease, he thinks, ah, maybe I can do a favor for God. What God wants from David are not favors, but faithfulness, obedience. So God leaves Nathan to deliver the news to the king. There will be no house. God does not need this gift. Truthfully, it was only last night that I realized it might be a bad move to tell a story about rejecting a large church building pledge <laughs> on this particular day. But, but the story is a good one, and the point is a good one. If any of us develops a self-identity in which God's will is subordinated to our will, everything else we do is in vain. God asserts authority over the direction of David's life. God reminds David, I took you out of that posture. I turned you into a prince. I've been with you every step of the way. I helped you defeat your enemies. I will make your name great. I will keep you safe. I will give you rest. And then finally, the big promise, the covenant. David, your house your kingdom are assured forever. Now for David, this is great news. If you are a king, it is good to have God on your side. But I would also guess that for many of you, this passage makes you squirm just a little bit. Here, God is aligning God's self with a particular political power. What a can of worms that is, isn't it? This passage opens the door wide to all kinds of grotesque political ideologies, to propaganda, to monopolies of wealth and power that are wielded in the name of God. It is impossible, I think, not to draw a dotted line from this moment in Scripture where God endorses David's rule to our present day when some among us think our president is put there by God and that even what he does wrong is somehow right. Before we get to those questions, let's talk for a second about God. Here God has gone and done it yet again. Just as with Abraham and Sarah, these two deeply flawed people who laughed at God in the face of God's covenant, and yet in whom God establishes a covenant through them with all people, and just as with the complaining folk in the desert, 
to whom God gave the gift of the law, even when they responded by dancing circles around the golden cow. Now, again, through David, this deeply flawed ruler, God establishes a covenant. God is saying, yet again, that my will is to be embodied in real people. In real, complex, difficult, contingent human situations. Our God is nothing if not consistent in making promises to people who frankly don't deserve them. In the case of David, God is saying that the beautiful order that I gave to the world when I gave it the gift of creation, that order requires that there be some kind of authority, some kind of leadership, some kind of legitimate power to receive this gift and translate it into the ordering of human life, into government and economics and culture. Reluctantly, God gives us leaders. God's reluctance is spot on, isn't it? Every leader, every leader from David to Donald, tends to think that the order of the world is up to them. They forget, or they become deluded by their own self-importance, and they can't recognize anymore that they are but a conduit for God's gracious gifts. It happens time and again in the biblical story and, and in our own lives. Rulers who are put in place to be agents of God's shalom become the source of our chaos. In every generation, the forces of law and order can and must be judged by whether they uphold God's vision for our common life. Does the leader honor the gift of creation? Does the leader promote shalom, peace, and justice among the people? These may sound like abstract questions, but they are not. The scriptures are abundantly clear what this looks like in practice. Open today Psalm 72, and you will read, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May the king judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May the king defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush their oppressors. That's not ambiguous. We can and we must hold every leader to this standard. Their power is not theirs. It is given to them by God, and God gives it to them for one reason alone, that they use that power to protect the poor and the vulnerable. That is God's path to shalom, the only path, and any other so-called order is chaos and death masquerading as order. Yes, you may take that standard to the voting booth with you. God knows that everyone called into power is seduced by it. 
So God ensures that every leader must be accompanied by a prophet, maybe more than one. There's no legitimate leader and no legitimate power unless there is someone or some ones who are walking alongside them, people who are immune to the siren song of power, people who have no vested interest in what is, whose sole job it is to keep their eyes on God's vision of beloved community for all. Because it's the prophet who can see God and hear God. The prophet is the one who can say whether the leader's decisions create justice for the poor. And when they do not, the prophet speaks truth to power. Poor Nathan. Right? I mean, more than once, God tells Nathan to come to the king and show him his glaring faults. As other leaders will ascend to the throne of David, God will continue to lift up prophets who will shadow those rulers and see what they cannot see, and they will call them back to the way of God when they stray, and they always stray. All next month in November, as a congregation, we will dive into the story of God's prophets into the lives of Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah. But this tradition of prophecy, though it is rooted in the past, is not restrained in the past. God continues to raise up prophets who call the powerful of our world to account. I bet you could name three or four or five or ten this morning. How about William Barber and Liz Theo Harris who are leading the poor people's campaign in our nation right now? How about Greta Thunberg and Bill McKibben and any number of climate activists who are talking about the world as it is and the world as it must become. Or Tarana Burke and Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy who have lifted the Me Too movement to a central place in our culture. All of them prophets. God's prophets still walk among us and they are in our own congregation It is our role to amplify their voices if the leaders are not listening to them. Now believe me, I know it is very easy to get cynical very fast about the role of religion in politics. There is no doubt that our religion has harmed and corrupted our politics. And yet our tradition also does not allow us to opt out of politics or to suggest that religion and politics are separate spheres that can be kept clean from one another. Instead, you and I are invited to practice a healthy and faithful religious engagement with political powers. This engagement, as I have tried to say this morning, has three components, and I'm going to name them for you. You can write them down in your bulletin. You can share them with friends when you start arguing about the role of religion and politics. Here they are. Our number one job 
is to tell leaders that political power is a gift that they exercise for the purpose of realizing God's love and justice. Right? It's a gift. It's not theirs. It's a gift for the purpose of exercising love and justice, especially for those who are poor. Number two, it's our job to engage the political sphere by keeping our ears tuned to the voices of the prophets. It is their voices, it's their vision that keeps all of us focused on the vision of what is good and not just what is expedient. So number two, listen to the prophets. And our third rule of engagement for the world of politics is to celebrate. To celebrate that God's covenant promise is to be with us in the here and now. God's unending covenant with David should keep us relentlessly hopeful about our political life. Because it is clearly God's will that we are to live in communities of fairness and prosperity and peace in the here and now and not in the by and by. It is God's intention that all of us, every single person on this earth, live lives. Including and especially our political and economic lives where hard decisions are made by real people under real constraints that have life or death consequences. It is God's intention that among the pressures of power, among our histories of oppression, our cycles of revenge, our injustice masquerading as order, among our fears and our hopes, it's God's intention that we can order our lives to live compassionately with every one of our neighbors. God's will for us is shalom. In our tradition, this shows up as a relentless hope. A hope that God will raise up leaders who will bring that shalom into our actual lives. This relentless hope has long lived in our tradition and it was that relentless hope that was on the hearts and minds of those who met Jesus. And maybe even the most cynical about them, the most cynical ones who had given up on the idea that God keeps the promise to David, Perhaps even they saw in Jesus a way of being in the world, a way of holding power and giving power and sharing power that was so beautiful and so full of God's love that they said, ah, this is the one whom God has sent to sit on the throne of David. They looked at Jesus and they said, Surely God has kept God's promise. Let the people say, Amen. Amen. Amen.